Welcome back, friends, to our study of 1 Corinthians, or as one of our good bishops says, uh, welcome beautiful people. Uh, but thank you for joining us. I invite you to open your Bible to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we are going to finish up chapter 11 today, which means, by the way, in our next session, we'll begin that tremendous section of 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, where we'll be looking uh, even more specifically at spiritual gifts, how the Holy Spirit manifests uh, himself in our lives. So that will begin next week. But right now we're finishing up chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, We're in this section where uh, Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper. There have been abuses of the Lord's Supper in Corinth. Rather than a sign of their unity, their coming together for the celebration of the Lord's Supper was a sign of their disunity. So he's already talked about uh, abuses of the Lord's Supper, uh, using the Lord's Supper in such a way that divides the people rather than unites them with one another and with, with Christ. Uh, We've already seen, we, we, we saw that last week in verses 17 through 22 of 1 Corinthians where he, he is talking about abuses of this sacred meal, this uh, time of intense worship. Uh, today we're going to finish up the chapter by looking at verses 23 through 34, which is the remainder of the chap- chapter. So he's, he's continuing to talk about the Lord's Supper. Very, very significant section because he's going to be talking about uh, what he believes the Lord's Supper to be, uh, what, what the Lord's Supper can do in our lives. He's going to be talking also about, in a, in a rather difficult section, but one that's not as difficult as some people make it, where he's going to be talking about what it means to receive the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Uh, so um, uh, we're looking at a very important section. It's also important because as he speaks about what the Lord's Supper is, Uh, He quotes words from Jesus. So what we have here in this section is not simply the oldest remarks, the oldest recorded words of Jesus about the Lord's Supper, because it is that, because again, the writings of Paul predate the Gospels. So we certainly have um, the oldest recorded words of Jesus concerning the Lord's Supper. Uh, but this very well may be just the oldest recorded words of Jesus, uh, certainly in the Apostle Paul. Uh, this is one of the few places, maybe the only place, that it is obviously a direct quotation of Jesus that Paul is inserting into one of his letters. So what you have here are, are the oldest uh, red letters in the New Testament, these these. these Words contain a direct quotation from Jesus. And uh, again, it's about the Lord's Supper. So let's begin at verse 23. Paul says, chapter 11, verse 23, 1 Corinthians, For I, Paul is referencing himself, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Uh, He's talking about um, a revelation from the Lord that he has received that he's delivering to the people. Uh, That is a word that actually um, is connected to the word that we use for tradition. Uh, That's what tradition is, something that was received by someone before us 
and has been passed down to us now. Uh, that's tradition. He is making it clear that this tradition is one that's received directly from the Lord. Now, what we don't know is, is, is he talking about a direct revelation from Jesus Christ to him, Paul, uh, an immediate revelation, direct revelation from Jesus to Paul that Paul passes on? Or is he just simply talking about something that Jesus delivered to the apostolic community that he is passing on? Uh, probably the latter uh, is probably something that has been received to the, that the early Christians received that, um, that Paul is passing on. Uh, it's rather like how the rabbis um, will talk about receiving something from Sinai. And that doesn't mean that they were personally out at Mount Sinai, but it's something that was given at Mount Sinai that has continued to be passed along and that they are continuing to pass along. So that's, um, that may be what he means. He received something from the Lord via the early Christian community, uh, via the, the other apostles that he is now delivering to the, to the Christians there in Corinth. Uh, then in the second part of verse 23, he's going to give you the content of this revelation that he is delivering, passing on to the Christians of Corinth. Uh, he has made reference to what he has received, he is now delivering, and it is this, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, and he's going to tell you what happened on this night. Uh, notice Jesus is referenced as the Lord Jesus, that is a word in the Jewish community of the first century that was a word that was used only for God. And now this word is being used for Jesus. Again, we sometimes confuse that because in English we, we have Lord Winston Churchill. Um, we have lords in, in England. We have the House of Lords in Parliament. Uh, but the Jewish world didn't have that. Lord is never used except for divinity. So Paul is referencing Jesus as the Lord Jesus. And that's why the earliest Christian confession is Jesus is Lord. And that means a lot more than he's just, um, he's just master of our lives. He, he is God. He is God incarnate. He is divinity. He is deity. He is the fullness of God dwelling bodily on earth. Uh, so Lord, which is Adonai, Kyrios in the Greek, Adonai in the Hebrew, means something very specific uh, that may get lost in English sometimes because they only knew of one Lord in the Hebrew Bible, and that's, uh, that's, that's, that's God. Anyway, but here Paul, following suit with the whole early Christian community, is referencing Jesus as the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, and by the way, the word passed on tradition and the word betrayed are very similar in the Greek, so Paul is probably doing a play on words here. He's delivering uh, something he has received uh, about Jesus that occurred on the night that Jesus was betrayed. We know what night this is. It's what we would call the upper room episode. It's what we sometimes call the last supper of Jesus. Uh, we don't use that phrase much anymore because now Jesus is having supper with us every time we celebrate this sacred meal, the Lord's Supper. So Jesus is continuing to eat suppers with his followers. But sometimes when we use the phrase last supper, we're, we're talking about that meal in the upper room on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. 
betrayed by the um, uh, by Judas, and betrayed literally means in the Hebrew, and your English translation may see this, the night in which he was handed over. So a betrayal, the betrayals, he's being handed over to his enemies, the Jewish leaders who want his death. Uh, that's the betrayal that took place on this night. Verse 24, uh, he goes on to say that on this night in which Jesus betrayed, it is... Um, on this night that he was betrayed, and, verse 24, when he had given thanks, he broke it, the bread, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Some old manuscripts say which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, let's stop there. Uh, let me say a few words about those, uh, what we call words of institution, these are words of institution where Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper. It says, when he had given thanks. Sometimes we, um, following on the King James, we talk about he, he took the bread and he blessed it. Um, that's probably an erroneous translation. Jesus was not blessing bread. Jesus was blessing God or giving thanks to God. We know that in the Jewish tradition... Uh, they thank God for everything, and before you take bread or before you take the meal or before you take the cup, there, there's multitudes of Jewish blessings. But we know how Jewish blessings uh, begin. Berakah, Adahenu, Adonai is thank you, God. Um, so it's, uh, the, the person being blessed here is God. The, the bread, the inanimate bread was not being blessed. We don't tend to bless a lot of inanimate objects. We bless God for the giving of those inanimate objects. That's why this translation is correct. It said, when he had given thanks, he gave thanks to God and he blessed God uh, because that's how you do it in Judaism. You, you thank God, you bless God. Baruch Adonai, Heloheinu, Adonai. You bless God, uh, give thanks to God. So he blessed God or gave thanks. Then it says he broke it. Uh, since this occurred, we see this breaking as uh, reminding us, taking us back to the breaking of his body. Because as he broke it, it says that Jesus said, this is my body. Jesus said that, this is my body. A lot of Christian ink has been spilt over the centuries uh, trying to explain what Jesus means when he says, this is my body. Christians have come to basically one of three conclusions. Uh, this is my body. It uh, became, in the Roman Catholic tradition, the, 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 the doctrine of transubstantiation, that uh, this, this bread, and then we're going to say about the cup, this bread and this wine uh, mysteriously, uh, be, literally, mysteriously and literally, becomes the body and blood of Christ. Uh, that even though the outward sign doesn't change, the inward nature of the bread and the wine changes. And that's why it is very, very sacred in the Roman tradition, because uh, it, it becomes, literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. Uh, that's why in, in the Roman Catholic Church until recent years, it, it became the tradition to only give the bread to the laity, not the cup because uh, the cup could be spilled, the cup could be dribbled down your chin, and for other reasons, but only the priest received the cup. Uh, everyone else received the bread. Post-Vatican II, the, the cup is now offered to laity. But part of the Protestant Reformation, as all Protestants said, 
in, in regarding the observance of the Lord's Supper, that we give both bread and cup to the laity. Um, but it, that's one way of looking at what Jesus says when he says, this is my body, that somehow the bread turned into his body. That's the transubstantiation of the Roman church. Uh, there's a, a little bit of deviation from that as we get into the Protestant world, that it stays bread, it stays wine, but somehow Jesus is um, spiritually present, spiritually available, spiritually offered through the bread and the wine, through the elements. Um, that is um, pretty much um, the Lutheran view, the Anglican view, the Church of England view, uh, to a certain extent, even some of the Reformed view with some of Presbyterianism is certainly the Methodist view because of our connection with the Church of England. We believe in the real presence of Christ in the sacrament. That's why it's something we do frequently. We do it often. John Wesley said, do it daily if possible. It's not just remembering something from history, but it is something happening in the moment uh, that bread and that wine is conveying to us the, the presence of Christ. Uh, that's why we, we use the term, most of us use the term sacrament. It's not just an ordinance, it's a sacrament because it is, the word sacrament uh, goes back to the Greek word mysterium or mystery. It's a mystery where God is giving Jesus to us in the bread and the wine. That becomes uh, even the view of the bulk of our Protestant churches. But there is a third view, which uh, is, is prevalent among uh, some radical Protestants, as the way we've historically said it, and that is that the bread and the wine just symbolize some other reality. The bread and the wine don't create anything. The bread and the wine doesn't convey anything. Uh, it's basically a memory aid to help you remember um, what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Um, I, I, I understand that. Uh, but I also thank Paul because and we looked earlier in chapter, uh, in chapter 10 about Paul's using the word. It is not, this, uh, is not the sharing in this bread, the sharing in this cup, a participation, a fellowship, a communion with Jesus Christ. So that's why most of us think it's more than just a symbol. Something is happening in that moment. It is an occurrence of fellowship with God that is a holy communion, a holy fellowship with God. So there's a, the three basic ways in the Christian community uh, that uh, Jesus' words, this in, is my body, is defined. Um, it literally is the body. That's a very fundamentalist interpretation. When he said, this is my body, he means this is my body. And it becomes the body. That's sort of the Roman Catholic view. Uh, then there's the view in the, kind of in the middle that we believe it to be something supernatural, something spiritual. Uh, it is something that conveys um, uh, the presence of Christ to us. So we believe in the real presence of Christ. And then the, the, the third view is, is the much more radical view, uh, the view furthest away from the his, historic view of the church, that it is just a symbol of something that reminds you of what has happened in the past. Um, you have to, as one of my professors, you say pays your money and takes your choice as to what Jesus means by this is my body. But anyway, he says, as he's holding the bread, this is my body, which is given for you or broken for you. It, in oldest manuscripts, it's just literally which is for you. You have to determine how this 
bread, this body that he's holding is for you. And then verse 25, in the same way, in the same way also he took the cup. Uh, so he did the same thing, I'm sure, gave thanks to the cup, over the cup. He gave thanks over the cup in Hebrew uh, for the gift of, of the wine in the cup. So uh, Paul just says here, though, after supper, he, uh, in the same way, after supper, this would be the third or the fourth cup of the Passover meal. Particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke is pretty clear that, that what Jesus did in the upper room was the Seder meal associated with the Passover that he transformed into a, a, what becomes for the Christians an observance, what we call the Lord's Supper. So that's why he knows it says after supper, Jesus took the cup. This is after the sharing of the meal, after the sharing of the first two cups, that he took the third or the fourth cup. Um, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. So this cup is a sign of the new covenant. It is, let's say, maybe even a conveyor of the new covenant. The new covenant uh, being something from the Hebrew Bible. Um, if you want to go to like Jeremiah 31, that's one of the best places, uh, the covenant that is to come what we call the New Covenant, the New Testament, the New Covenant. Uh, it was prophesied in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't uh, bring about a new covenant in the sense that it replaces the Old Covenant, but Jesus brings about the New Covenant that's prophesied in the Hebrew Bible that will complete the Old Covenant. So that's what's happening here is um, the, the, the cup... Uh, conveys, brings, institutes the new covenant, which Jesus says, new covenant in my blood. Uh, you can't understand New Testament without Old Testament. That's why we kept both Testaments in the early Christian community. Uh, you can't understand the sacrifice of Jesus without understanding the Hebrew vision of sacrifice that's presented in the Old Testament. And you have to understand uh, the significance of blood. Uh, the life is in the blood. Uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. I'm quoting Bible at this point. You have to understand that to understand some of the atonement uh, that Christ brings about for us to be made at one with God. So uh, you, you really can't do Christianity without a reference to the blood, the shed blood of Christ and what all that means. I, I've been in some settings of some very... Um, um, maybe you can say very modern Christians. Maybe you prefer the, the word very liberal Christians of the modern era. Who I've watched them do a, a, a Lord's Supper, and I've watched them create and perform a liturgy of the Lord's Supper where they don't even use the word blood. Um, as long as the historic Lord's Supper is at the center of our faith, which I can't imagine Christianity in any other fashion, as, Lord, as long as the Lord's Supper is at the center of our faith, the blood of Christ and the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, is going to be central to the Christian faith. So he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And again, I've already mentioned that the remembrance here is a Jewish way of remembering. It is a remembering that allows you to spiritually participate 
in the original event. Jews to this day do this with a Passover celebration. Passover doesn't just remember or remind them of the Passover that occurred uh, with Moses when God allowed the death angel to pass over the children of Israel and then help them uh, make their exodus into the new world, new life. Um, Jesus um, was participating in a Passover meal when he instituted the Lord's Supper. Um, for us, uh, we, we, that's part of our sacred tradition too, that original Passover, but now in Jesus... A new sacrifice, a new lamb has been offered. We have, in a new way, been covered by the blood of Christ. In a new way, we are passing over from death to life. In a new way, we are making an exodus into new life. So uh, that's how this new covenant completes the old covenant. And that's how our remembrance of the new covenant is the same way that the Jewish world remembers the Passover when they, uh, when they remember it annually. They're not just recalling what happened two years ago, but they're remembering it in such a way that they are participating in the reality of it. So make sure that when you read the biblical word remembrance, uh, that's what you mean, that's what you understand us meaning by remembrance. This cup, back to the quotation, this cup is the new covenant or the new testament in my blood. Uh, my life that is given through my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You remember in a way that allows you to participate in it again. Then notice verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, and you see in the early church it was a weekly experience as it has been throughout most throughout a great portion of the Christian tradition. It's been recovered and uh, a more frequent Holy Communion observance has been recovered in the modern church. Even in Roman Catholicism, it's been recovered in the modern church. Uh, notice verse 26, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, should be often, as often as you do this, you proclaim, Paul says, or, if you want to translate that, you broadcast the Lord's death until he comes. So these two meals bracket our spiritual lives. The Lord's Supper takes us back, helps us re-experience some of our past and what Jesus has done. And uh, whenever we observe it now, we are participating in what Jesus is doing right now in the moment in our life in this world. But we're looking forward to when he comes again. We're looking forward to that final messianic banquet. We are anticipating the final messianic banquet when the kingdom is consummated. And that's why we would do it this way around the Lord's table until, um, until he comes. Then when he comes, this meal will be uh, replaced, completed by another meal. Uh, the, the marriage banquet of the Lamb, the messianic banquet. So... Um, our spiritual life in Christ is bracketed and nurtured and will be consummated uh, with, with a meal. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of that. So here in this first paragraph, uh, which is really verses 23 through 26, Paul has given you an understanding of the Lord's Supper using the words of Jesus. Now verses 26 through 32 are somewhat more difficult. Uh, he's going to talk about receiving the Lord Jesus through this meal, 
participating in this meal in a way that is worthy. He's going to caution us against participating in this meal, eating this bread and drinking this cup in an unworthy manner. Um, he's going to bring some interesting language, harsh language, uh, telling us not to participate in this meal in an unworthy manner. I've been in some traditions of the Christian church that so use this passage uh, that Christians are afraid to participate uh, in this meal. Uh, they think that participating in this meal somehow implies a great, great deal of um, moral purity or moral excellence. Um, so we need to pay close attention to what Paul is saying and what he's not saying at this point, what it means to participate in a worthy manner, because it is clear from all of Scripture um, there is, to a certain extent, uh, the reality that we never are worthy to receive the gifts of God. We are never worthy to receive the Lord's Supper. So in some ways we are to be worthy, in some ways we will never be worthy. So you had better be very, very careful how you define what it means to participate of the body and blood of Christ in the body and blood of Christ in a worthy manner, to avoid an unworthy manner. So let's see what Paul says, and then I'll, I'll offer you a quick summary of what I, what I think he means. So beginning at verse 27, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Again, this can be frightening. And I grew up in a church that used this verse that um, prevented a lot of people from participating because of fear that they would uh, receive it in an unworthy manner and be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. We think what Paul's saying there is be guilty of re-crucifying Christ if you receive it in an unworthy, unworthy manner. So uh, we need to make sure we understand what Paul means by receiving an unworthy manner, because we don't want to do that. Look at verse 26. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and the cup. So we know that Paul says we need to examine ourselves before we participate. We know he's saying that. Um, we'll say some more about it. Let's continue on with the text. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then he says a very startling thing in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Well, none of us want to be in that category. But if we judge ourselves, Paul says, verse 31, if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. And he goes on in verse 32, this ends this interesting section, and I'll say some more. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So yeah, you could read this. This could keep you from the table, uh, depending on how you translate or how you interpret what he means by unworthy. Let me just offer you my summary statement. None of us are worthy of the sacrifice of Christ. Therefore, none of us on that level are worthy to receive the Lord's Supper. As a matter of fact, we receive the gift of Jesus Christ because we're unworthy, because we're sinful creatures. 
we need the salvation and the grace and the deliverance uh, that comes to us in, in Jesus Christ. So he can't be speaking of, of, of receiving it in a worthy manner in such a way as, as, as understanding almost you don't need the sacrifice of Christ. You don't need grace. Um, I, I, I flee to the table because I'm so unworthy. I need what's being offered to me there. So that leads me to talk about what it means to receive in an unworthy way. Well, picking up on what I just said, I, I think receiving in a worthy way means I understand what it is I need. And I understand what's being offered to me. It's not that I have a wonderful theology of the Eucharist. It's not that I can give you a complete understanding of Trinitarian faith. It's not that I do such a great job of understanding the atonement and what all Jesus uh, has offered me. Uh, That's where C.S. Lewis one time said, notice Jesus says, take, eat. He doesn't say, take, understand. It's not saying that we are perfect theologians when it comes to understanding Jesus or this meal. Uh, None of us reach that. We're, We're striving. We're heading that direction. We want to know more and more about our faith, but we're never going to uh, have that part of it perfect. We're not going to have perfect understanding. So he cannot be um, saying that's what it means to receive it in a worthy manner, have perfect understanding. But I think we should be able to understand this much. What is offered to us in Jesus Christ, what is offered to us through this sacred meal, is something we're not worthy to receive. It's a gift. God has done something for us in Jesus Christ that we cannot accomplish ourselves. We cannot be reconciled to God uh, on our own. We cannot live in union with God on our own. There's nothing we have, nothing we can ever do to bridge that gap or that gulf between sinful humanity and a holy God. There's nothing we can do except realize our need. So that's why oftentimes when I'm offering an invitation to the table, I simply say this table is open to all who see their need of God's grace in Jesus Christ and want to receive more of that grace in Jesus Christ. What you have to know well is your need, not your not some highly developed Christology or theology or uh, sacramental theology. Uh, that's all good stuff. But we're never going to be worthy of, uh, com- of com- because of complete understanding and perfect understanding. But we can see our need and we can flee to Christ to meet this need. Uh, that's part of what I think it means to receive this sacrament in a worthy manner. You know it's a gift. You know it's a gift you need. You know it's a gift that's coming from God. You know it's Christ doing something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. You know that the spiritual life is not just about renovation or resolution or um, making um, reading the right self-help book. Uh, sometimes Christianity even falls into that, that trap. Uh, the Christian life is receiving from God and then letting God live through us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's why for us, I believe Paul is saying here that to receive it worthy uh, means to re- let our lives reflect the gospel. 
to, to walk worthy in a manner of the gospel, to, to, to make sure that we understand the people who know us, at least pay attention to us, know that we know that Jesus Christ is Lord and we are not. Jesus Christ has redeemed us because we are not capable of that. So I believe all of that is part of what it means to receive worthy. It also says we're not discerning the body. Uh, it can just simply mean, because Paul in other places says the body of Christ is the church, the people of Jesus. Discerning the body is understanding the people of Jesus. Uh, and maybe both are being meant here. Uh, something to do with uh, the celebration of the Lord's Supper and something to do with the church. Because keep in mind, part of what Paul is attacking here is the people in Corinth are abusing the Lord's Supper by letting it become an example of uh, disunity, division, by allowing it to become something that separates the rich from the poor. And we've already seen that in, in 1 Corinthians. So discerning the body may be something as simple as understanding the body, understanding who your brothers and sisters are, and um, letting them... Um, you know, participate in this meal. You know, understand that, that, that you don't need this meal any less than someone else needs this sacred meal, the gift of God in Christ. So discerning the body might have sacramental theology, um, understanding what Jesus has offered and what he is offering through this meal. But it also might just mean understanding the unity that belongs to the body. Everybody that belongs to Jesus belongs to everybody that belongs to Jesus. You know, an example may be the old days of slavery. In the old days of slavery in the South, we would put our slaves in the balcony uh, of the church, in Methodist churches, and then there was a portion of the communion rail where the slaves could kneel and receive communion. And those of us that were not in that court category, we had the rest of the communion rail. So we were doing that in the South. We did it for about 200 years in the South. Uh, you would think we would have known better. But there the celebration of the Lord's Supper became a sign of our disunity. We didn't discern that those slaves were as much a part of the body of Christ as we are. And we made it apparent by where we made them sit in the sanctuary and where we made them commune at the communion rail. Uh, one of the things uh, from the life of Robert E. Lee that occurred was after the Civil War, according, it may be legend, but after the Civil War in his Episcopal church there in Virginia, um, he, he, he desegregated the communion rail. And he knelt with the African-Americans, the ex-slaves at that point, that may have still been in the church, he knelt with them together. I'm glad at least he understood that after the Civil War. Um, it was almost universal among Southern churches. Uh, Methodism early on said this is not true, but then we bowed to convention in the South, and we started allowing slavery to determine how we do our spiritual life. But... Um, so discerning the body may just be as simple as discerning who the church is, uh, that everybody belongs to Jesus, belongs to everybody belongs to Jesus. So eating the body and blood of Christ in an unworthy manner of not discerning the body, because you know, as Paul says, just the body at one point, not discerning the body may not be understanding who the church is. And that, you know, the ground, the ground is always level at the foot of the cross. The ground is always level 
when we receive the Lord's Supper. So all of that may go into play in what he means by receiving the Lord's Supper in a worthy or an unworthy manner. Okay, verses 33 and 34, he just ends up with um, some practical words. Paul says, uh, to sort of summarize um, what he's been saying about the Lord's Supper, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, he's talking about this sacred meal, wait for one another, uh, share with one another, Serve one another. Have you wanted to find wait? Wait for one another. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. I need to say a word about judgment before we finish. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Uh, so he's just saying, again, don't let this sacred meal display your disunity. Wait on each other. Serve one another. Make sure you're all one around this table. Um, somebody should not be getting more of this sacred meal than someone else. Uh, and that's why he's saying, if you're hungry, go ahead and satisfy that hunger at home before you come to this sacred meal. Because this meal is about filling yourself spiritually, not filling your belly fully. So, um, you know, make sure that you're not um, uh, showing disunity uh, in the sharing of this meal. Because he did say, by the way, some of this spiritual, some of this spiritual disease that may be infecting the Corinthian church is causing people uh, to be sick and die. He said that. Uh, you notice he said that in verse 30. Here again, he talks about judgment. And he's already said that if maybe if we discipline ourselves, judge ourselves now in the present, that may avert God's judgment in the future. And that's certainly true. Uh, in the New Testament, the judgment that we experience is both, both a present and a future reality. God will judge us in the future one day uh, because of our faith in Christ or lack thereof. But we are judged every day um, by how we live our lives. Our spirit and our bodies are connected. So spiritual illness, mental illness, um, emotional illness all has physical ramifications. We know that. Uh, we, we're a unity. We're a psycho-spiritual social unity. Um, and that's why Paul is saying some of your spiritual disease might be um, causing physical sickness. And that may be part of what God is allowing to help correct us. Um, we are a unit. Our bodies are a unit. So he's saying that we need to judge ourselves, we need to discern ourselves, we need to discipline ourselves uh, so that might save some future discipline when God judges us. We need to pay attention to how we live. And, you know, there's, you know, we cannot say, well, this is something I do in my private life, therefore it has no public ramifications. It has no social ramifications. It doesn't uh, impact all the other relationships in my life. We are a psycho-social spiritual reality. What we do spiritually, what we do emotionally, what we do physically um, comprises who we are as whole human beings. So we need to, we need to discipline ourselves. Uh, to make sure that we are healthy across the board. He's saying that. But notice he does say at the end, about the other things, I will give direction when I come. I know this has been a long segment, but this brought us to the end of the chapter. Uh, don't we wish we know what else Paul talked about? 
um, beyond what he wrote in this letter, what he talked about when he does make a return visit to them. Don't we wish we know? Um, my guess is it's stuff he's talked about in other letters. I don't know that we've missed out. Thank you for a little extra time this week. This takes us to the end of chapter 11. We're at the beginning of chapter 12, and uh, we're getting into a wonderful se- section where we're going to be talking about the manifestation of spiritual gifts in our lives. God bless you.